this point, children in kindergarten and first grade are welcome to a primary church. That's what you do. And the rest of us, um, do I have video? Hello? There we go. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come this morning and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would teach us. Uh, It's been a while since we've been back in Revelation. I pray that you would just make things clear today. I pray that you bring us up to speed. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, it's hard to believe it's been three weeks since I've been here and preached in Revelation. On the other hand, time flies when you're in a developing country with food poisoning. So, um, as we can, you know, it has been three weeks. We we're about six six messages into the series on Revelation, so we got to do a little bit of review to sort of bring us up to speed. And then we're going to jump right into the uh, third church of seven, the church in Pergamum. So first thing we have to think through is what kind of literature is the book of Revelation. And if you remember I told you that of all the biblical literature, Revelation in some sense is different. On the other hand, it's really just a hybrid. It's a hybrid of apocalypse. And if you remember what apocalypse was, apocalypse simply means to unveil something. It's sort of like looking behind the curtain. So that's one form. It also is a prophecy. Remember, that what a prophecy does in the Bible most of the times is not predict things. What prophecy is for in the Bible, generally speaking, is to persuade us of something, usually to some moral end. In other words, it's usually trying to persuade us to repent of sin or it's trying to persuade us in order to have faith or to believe the promises of God or something. So uh, the book of Revelation, on one hand, is unveiling something. On the other hand, it's trying to persuade us of something. And finally, it's just a letter. I mean, it, it sounds odd to say it's just a letter because it's, it's quite odd if you think of it in those terms, but it really is. Remember, John opens this book by saying, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia. So it's one letter to seven churches. And we started a few weeks ago, at least a few weeks ago, when I was here last, looking at these churches. There were seven of them. Remember, seven is the complete number, biblically speaking. So he could have written to eight churches. He could have written to 12. He could have written to five. But most people think the reason he chose seven, besides the representative of certain issues in the church, and also they represent all churches. So each letter, if you look at just the letters in here, they are addressed to a particular church, but they always close with, hear what the Spirit says to the church as, plural. So what was the purpose of the book of Revelation? If you remember, it was pretty simple as well. That the purpose of the book of Revelation is simply to teach us that Jesus on one hand has won in the past. So when you read the book of Revelation, you see a lot about what Jesus has done. In fact, a lot of what people read and think that will come in the future is already done. Because what the book of Revelation is trying to persuade us of over and over again is that Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. But on the other hand, there is some stuff that's probably in the future. And so he has not only won the victory over sin and death in the past, but he will culminate everything. All of creation will be reconciled unto him someday in the future. He will win in the end. But maybe more important for us and for the churches now is the fact that he is winning. 
that even now Jesus is winning people to himself. Even now Jesus is building his church. Even now Jesus is active in his church. We tend to think of you in the church that we're just here by ourselves and that Jesus is in heaven waiting until the final day when he will come to get us. When in fact we learn from the book of Revelation that Jesus walks among the midst of the churches. He knows what's going on because he's present by his spirit. So with all of that said, where are we now so far what we've looked at? First we looked at John's vision in chapter 1. And if you remember, when you look at John's vision, he turns around, he hears a voice, and he sees Jesus, but he doesn't see Jesus, the, the, the carpenter, or Jesus the crucified. He sees this grand figure from the Old Testament. Actually, he sees a grand figure that's sort of pieces of the Old Testament, different images from the Old Testament, whether it's brass feet or flaming eyes or a sword coming out of his mouth. And the reason that that vision is so important is not just because it it grounds us in the Old Testament, but also because each of the letters to the seven churches open with part of that vision. And the part of the vision that is used to open the letters is also a clue to what the solution is to that church's problems. So if you remember, the first church we looked at was Ephesus. And remember, Ephesus' primary problem was that they had lost their first love. They didn't care for those outside the church. They cared about doctrine. They were orthodox. They had everything, all their ducks in a row on one hand. On the other hand, they didn't care about those outside. And so the, very, the opening line for them is, he who stands them in the midst of the lampstands. So you know there's an issue with the lampstands or the church's witness. The next church we looked at was Smyrna. And Smyrna... Didn't really, Jesus didn't have any complaint about them, but they were experiencing some manner of persecution and Jesus wanted to remind them that I'm the first and the last and that they would, were basically, they needed to hang in there. They needed to conquer through the gospel. And so that leads us now to the third church, at least in the list, and that church is Pergamum. And on one hand, uh, there's not a lot said about Pergamum. On the other hand, it's a pretty important Church. It was the most important city in the province of Asia Minor, in fact. So as we look, consider what we know about Pergamum, for the whole province of Asia Minor, it was the capital city. In other words, if you need some kind of analogy, so far we've looked at, at the church in Ephesus, and that would be like what in America would be Manhattan. It was very cosmopolitan, it was a financial center, it was all these kinds of things. Smyrna, maybe, or not Alabama, but Atlanta, maybe. A little bit, a lot smaller than New York, but still a decent city. And Pergamum would be maybe the equivalent of Washington, D.C. for the province of Asia Minor. And the, the, the symbol for the city of Pergamum was the sword. That's going to become important later. And also, the, the city of Pergamum had the power, the proconsul there had the, the power to, to execute people. In other words, he had the power to order executions if he thought you deserved it. So it was also a big governmental center. Rome did a lot of business there. It was also a big intellectual center. As you talk about Pergamum, it's, you, it's, it reminds me in some sense of, of Tallahassee, Florida, where I went to school. Not because Tallahassee was big and bustling, but because it was a capital city, but it was also a, a, like a university town. The only library in the ancient Near East that was bigger than the library at Pergamum was Alexandria. Pergamum had about 200,000 volumes, they estimate. And in fact, I think the story is apocryphal, but supposedly uh, the parchment and the word Pergamum and parchment, they have the same sort of root 
words. Most people think that parchment was invented in Pergamum. And the apocryphal story is that they tried to recruit the librarian from Alexandria, and the Alexandria didn't like that, and so they cut him off their supply of papyrus, and they had to come up with something new. So they invented parchment. That's probably not true, but it's interesting nonetheless. Between the, 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 the influence of the government in Pergamum and the influence of the, the religions in Pergamum, it made it an extremely hard place for Christians to live. And I'll show you how religious was it. On one hand, it was, it was a place that had an altar to Zeus. In fact, not only did it have an altar to Zeus, the king of the gods, but the altar to Zeus has actually been replicated throughout history. Most notably, uh, Adolf Hitler replicated the altar to Zeus in order to, to speak from when he was speaking to the crowds. There are a couple other historical figures that have done that. Also, Athena was the patron goddess of Pergamum, the goddess of war. And if you wonder, you know, was it a fun place to be? Well, Dionysus was also one of the patron gods, and Dionysus in Greek is known as Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of partying. And then finally, more famous maybe than any of those, three people used to come from all over the ancient Near East to visit the temple of Asclepius. And notice I put the whole statue there because what's important about the temple of Asclepius is the snake. Why is that so important? You see, in the ancient Near East and the Asia Minor, they would think when they thought Asclepius, they would think that. And when we think Asclepius, we think that. In fact, Modern medicine gets its symbology from the temple of Asclepius, which was a healing place. It was a place where you would go from all over the ancient Near East in order to be healed of your diseases, except the problem was if you were like Indiana Jones, it was full of snakes. You had to go and let the snakes crawl over you. So people came. And so when you begin to think where Jesus opens up and says, you know, I know you, where you live in Satan's hometown and where Satan's throne is, there are a lot of different options for that. Some people think it was the, the altar to Zeus. Other people think it was this uh, temple to Asclepius because it was all about snakes, serpents, Satan. Get it? More important than any of those, however, was the temple to Caesar Augustus and other Roman emperors. In other words, Pergamum was the first place where a, Roman, a living Roman emperor actually had a temple built for himself. So in Pergamum, more than any other place, if you remember from the intro, part of the problem with the churches in Asia Minor is they were, they were probably being pinched between Jewish leaders who didn't like them and the Romans who expected them to participate in this cult to the emperor. In other words, they would have to either say Caesar is Lord or they would say Jesus is Lord. Saying Caesar is Lord would have benefit. Saying Jesus is Lord could get you in a lot of trouble. And in Pergamum, more than any other place, because of the influence of the government, because of the influence of religion, because of the influence of the temples to the emperors, Pergamum, more than any other place, was the place where Christians felt pinched. We're going to see that in just a minute. Now, what's the situation in Pergamum? Well, first let me give you an outline. Basically, the outline to all these letters is more or less the same. There's an opening, and the opening is something that's going to give us a clue to the rest of the letter. There's a situation, there's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's problem, or promises. And if you want to make that into three points, if that makes you feel better, <laughs> you could just do situation, problem, solution. 
But either way, all the letters basically are laid out this way. And so what's the opening clue that we have here? Verse 13 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the key there is the the phrase sharp two-edged sword. If you remember from the opening vision, the sharp two-edged sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. And if you remember the rest of the Bible, basically it has something to do with God's word, and particularly the word of judgment. And so Jesus opens up and says to him, to him who has ears, the word who has, of him who has the two, sharp two-edged sword. Now it's interesting because remember the, the city of Pergamum, the symbol for that city was the sword. The proconsul had the, the power of the sword. And among other things, when this letter opens up, it says that there is someone who has a bigger sword than the, exists in Pergamum. There is someone whose sword is more important than the sword in Pergamum. And that's the sword of Jesus. It's the one that comes out of his mouth. But what does it tell us? It tells us that basically there's one of two things that are going to be addressed here. Because the problem is going to be solved by what comes out of Jesus' mouth, there's either a problem with orthodoxy or a problem with orthopraxy. I put dashes in there on purpose. Orthodoxy means basically something like straight teaching or straight doctrine. And orthopraxy means something like straight Practice or, or correct practice, right? Praxy, practice. And so the problem in, in Pergamum basically is either going to be a problem of orthodoxy, wrong thinking, or a problem of, of orthopraxy, wrong practice, and Jesus is going to call them back according to the word of his mouth, okay? Okay, I had to put this. You, you know, before you... you, you you, get into, you have to think that the cities in the ancient Near East, had, they didn't have chambers of commerce, but they wanted people to come to their city, and they wanted people to do business in their city. And I just wonder what this letter did to commerce in that city. Right? Imagine, you know, visit per- Pergamum where Satan dwells, right? You can even sit in his throne if you want. I just think like, they probably didn't like it very much, at least the Romans. And so what's the, the situation He says in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. First thing I want you to notice is this. He says, I know where you dwell. Remember we said at the beginning, when we started this series, that Jesus, because he's in the midst of the churches all the time, he knows what's going on in the churches. And what Jesus says to them is, I know where you dwell where Satan dwells. And he says, not only that, but where you dwell, that's where Satan's throne is. Now, why does he open up this way? Because you notice it isn't a compliment. He doesn't say, you know, you do this well or you've done this right. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And it reminds me, you know, when I worked for for Eli Lilly, I used to sell medicine for ADHD. And, you know, I would always tell doctors to ask their their to help as they coached parents. And the best question to ask someone with ADHD is not, what were you thinking? Because if you say, what were you thinking? They say, no, I don't know. Ask them, what were you not thinking about? And they'll say, well, I wasn't thinking about A, B, C, and D. But on top of that, it's not only what were you not thinking about. The question is, when, they, when people start to talk, let's say, for example, that I had ADHD and I got in trouble with my wife and I started trying to explain myself 
If she's smart, which she is, she'll say, is that an explanation or an excuse? In, in other words, Tommy, your own particular mental disorders might be an explanation for why you are so frustrating, but they are not an excuse for why you are so frustrating. And what Jesus is saying here is before Pergamum it could respond, if you will, he's saying to them, I know the explanation for why things are hard, but is it an excuse? In other words, what we're going to see is Pergam- the, the church in Pergamum was extremely tempted to compromise. And Jesus is telling them right up front, I understand what it's like. That out of all of, of Asia Minor where it's difficult to be a Christian, you live right in the center of Satan's throne. Where you live, that's where Satan lives. In fact, Satan's throne is right in the middle of Pergamum. I get that. Now what is Satan's throne? It depends who you talk to. This is one of the passages, this, this letter to Pergamum, where there are lots and lots of different uh, interpretations, lots of opinions. Of course, I'm going to give you the correct one this morning. Um, what does it mean? Some people think it, it's because the, the altar to Zeus was there, and that was the throne of Satan. Some people think it was because the temple to Asclepius, Asclepius with the, the, the serpents was the throne of Satan. Personally, I think it has to do with more with the Roman Empire and the Roman cult. That the Romans were the ones who were persecuting them, the Romans were the ones that were bringing down the heat, and the Romans were the ones that were causing them to compromise. And remember, we talked a few weeks ago that, that all evil ultimately has its root back in the person and work of Satan. He's constantly at war with God's people. And so I think the world powers, the, the, the Roman Empire coming against them, that's probably what he means by the fact that you dwell in Satan's throne room. So what's the problem then? He says in verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. And in verse 15, he says, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Going back to verse 13 for a minute. Remember, there's one person we know who is killed, Antipas. So it's very, it was very hard. But what is it that would cause people to compromise? What is it that would cause them to, 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 to not uh, live out the gospel? And basically, let me read to you verse 14, the full verse. He says, But I have a few things against you. There are some hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. First of all, I, I always laugh sort of at this verse because Jesus says, I have a few things against you. It's, it sounds so casual, but it's not. Remember Numbers chapter 22, Balak they hired Balaam to curse Israel and he didn't do it and it sort of went back and forth three times. He blessed them and eventually he led the sons of Israel to commit adultery. At least that was Moses' view of it. And so we don't know exactly what the teaching of Balaam was, but we do know that by the time of the New Testament, the teach, if someone was a teacher of Balaam, it was almost a technical term. And it was a technical term for anyone who led people astray. Just like Balaam led people astray, so whoever leads people astray is a teacher of Balaam. But we also have a clue here of what was taught, and it had something to do with eating food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. Which makes sense, because if you remember the big issue in the New Testament for Gentiles who were coming in was what should they do and not do. Particularly in Acts 15, should they be circumcised or not? And remember, all the apostles got together and they said they don't need to be circumcised, but 
We want you to do just these two things. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and don't engage in sexual immorality. Now, why would that be so important that they not eat meat sacrificed to idols? And it wasn't necessarily that they bought it from the store and it had been sacrificed and they didn't know it. The issue was participating in a feast where someone had sacrificed meat to the idols and they were going to eat it right then because to eat the, the meat sacrificed to the idols, even in the ancient Near East, was thought to you were partaking of that God. You were actually becoming one with that God by eating that meat. And also there, there were temple prostitutes and everything else. And so the question is, should a Christian do that kind of stuff? The apostle said, no. Apparently there were some people in the church who said, you know, it's really hard outside. And if you do those things when you're outside, as long as you don't mean it, it really isn't that big of a deal. Really what matters is what is in your heart. And what John is saying here, Jesus is saying through John, is it actually does matter. And the teaching of the Nicolaitans, what is that? That's one of the biggest mysteries in the New Testament. It either is another way of saying teachers of Balaam or... It is some kind of Gnosticism, and by Gnosticism I just mean that they separated uh, body from spirit, and what you did with your body didn't matter as long as your spirit was, was sure, your spirit was clean. In other words, you could engage in sexual immorality, you could engage in eating meat sacrificed to idols, and since it was in the flesh, it really wasn't that big a deal. In other words, some in the church in Pergamum were teaching compromise with the outside world is okay. And what does Jesus say to them? I mean, well, what's, let me look at another way to look at the problem. The church in Pergamum was really fighting a two-front war. On one hand, the war coming from the outside was with antagonists, people who, whether it was Romans or Jews or anyone, who from the outside were persecuting them. So that was one thing. On the other hand, on the inside of the church, they had compromisers. So outside they were being attacked, and they actually stood up well against those attacks. But what they didn't stand up well against were those inside the church who would compromise. In, in other words, they, they, they were courageous when people came at them from the outside, but on the inside of the church they were not courageous at all. And to be honest with you, I've seen that. I've been in several churches in the course of my life, and that's a pretty common issue. In other words, you, you look outside and you see all the evil that's outside and you say, what, we're going to take a stand against this, 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 and this. But the question is, do you look inside and say, we're also going to take a stand against gossip, self-righteousness, compromising, like in this case. We don't tend to do that as much. So what's the solution? Well, the solution's pretty simple. He says, Repent. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I want you to notice here who this word of this exhortation to repent is addressed to. In other words, he doesn't say there are compromisers in your church, there are people who are teaching this, and there are people who are teaching that, and I want them to repent. The rest of the church, you guys are okay. But what I want you to do is I want you to pick out the sinners, and those people need to repent. He doesn't say that. He says to the whole church, repent. And what he means there is that the whole church is responsible for the fact that people in the church are compromising. And at some level, what he's really getting at here is the fact that this church in Pergamum was not doing any kind of discipline. 
And by discipline, I don't mean harshness. I mean by discipline, just the very basics of discipline, which you start by telling someone the truth. In fact, a a couple session meetings ago with our elders, someone asked me, Tommy, what can we do to support you as a pastor? What's What's the best thing we could do? And I didn't even have to think about it. I said, just tell the truth. And I said that not because they have any problem with not telling the truth. I said it by way of encouragement. Because one of the issues in any church is on the outside, it's sort of easy to look out and tell the truth. It's a lot harder in the church to tell the truth when you see something happening. Because you don't want conflict. You, don't want, you want people to like you. You want people to, to not be angry at you. And yet, sometimes you've got to do it. In fact, one of the the blessings I think you as a congregation have is having elders who are willing to engage in the process of church discipline. Now, by the way, discipline is quite different than punishment. Churches in the Bible, we don't punish anywhere in the Bible. Punishment has to do with judicial uh, uh, things, and punishment is actually borne by Jesus on the cross. Jesus bore punishment. The purpose of discipline is always restoration. But there's a warning here. And what's the warning? You see, churches tend toward one end or the other of the spectrum. On one end, you have the church at Ephesus. Remember the church at Ephesus was so concerned about doctrine and so concerned about orthodoxy that when people came in and taught something bogus, they just kicked them out of the church. And remember when Jesus said to them, he said, the the thing that I like about you, Ephesus, is you hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. On the other hand, they were so concerned about their doctrine and so concerned about people doing the right things and believing the right things that they weren't loving at all. They, they had no outward face. Pergamum, in some sense, it almost seems like they had the exact opposite problem, which you see in churches too. That anything is okay as long as people are willing to come to church. If we can just get people in here, nothing else really matters. And so there's no discipline, there's no real confrontation of sins in our lives. And therefore, there's no real restoration. And so the the tension is somewhere in between. In other words, how do you repent of of compromising for the gospel without becoming unloving? How do you be outwardly faced without also becoming just indistinguishable from the outside world? Well, that's the the question, and that's the, the, the exhortation to the church in Pergamum. That's the exhortation to our church as well. That's the exhortation to every church. We're not just to remember like Ephesus our first love and be outwardly faced. But we're also to remember inside the church we're to be outwardly faced toward each other. And if someone is, going down, is in sin or someone is going down sort of this, this road where they're really compromising, is it a loving thing to not say anything? You know, one of the biggest myths in our common culture, I think, is that, one of the, that the highest value in our culture is toleration. I just read an article by D.A. Carson, and he traced the, the, the difference in definition in the word tolerance over the years. Well, the word tolerance used to mean you're willing to accept the fact that other people have different views than you. I hope everyone in this room would do that. But what it has come to mean, even in some dictionaries, is that you believe that people with other views than yours are equally as valid. In other words, there is no difference between this view or that view. When in fact, if the gospel is true, there actually is. That there is one mediator between God and man. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. And we must cling to that. So what are the promises attached 
here. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now this is one of the verses that I think I found about 12 different interpretations or 12 different opinions. I mean 12 drastically different opinions about what this means. And of course, the correct one is just what I'm getting ready to tell you. Um, Notice I just point out, he says, he, he was an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that, it, that every church is supposed to consider this. But also the promise is, is the, to the one who conquers, he says, I will give hidden manna, I will give him a white stone with the new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now the problem I think we run into is when you try and take these terms all separate from one another. Because when they're separate from one another, you can, you can come up with lots and lots and lots of different interpretations, lots of different views. But when you put them all together, they really, you, you really only come up with one thing, and that's basically um, this eschatological or end times uh, feast, this supper that's laid out even before you today, that Jesus says, whoever conquers, you're going to participate in this with me. And so when Jesus says, I'll give him some of the hidden manna, why is the manna hidden? Remember in the Old Testament, manna fell and Israel partook of it. And in the New Testament, Jesus basically says that I am the manna. I am the bread. But you know what? The bread, the manna is not hidden manna unless you have eyes to see. In other words, if you have eyes to see, it's not hidden anymore. It's hidden from those on the outside. But if you have eyes to see, you realize that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that feeds us. And what about this white stone with a new name written on the stone? Twelve different ways that people used to use these stones. And I think the ones that make the most sense in this context, first of all, people, when you were invited to a great feast at some wealthy person's house in Pergamum or in any of the cities, you would be given a white stone. That would be your token. In other words, it would be your admission ticket to get into that feast. Not only that, but also in their uh, court system, when juries would sit and they would hear a case, They would pass around a basket, and if you thought someone was innocent, you put a white stone in the basket. If you thought they were guilty, you put a black stone in the basket. Those are the two that seem to make the most sense, that because we've been forgiven for our sins, because we've been acquitted because of the person and work of Jesus, we now are admitted to this feast. That he gives us everything necessary to enter into this feast. And there's one more thing, and it's what's this issue of new name? What does it mean to have a new name? It either means one of two things. It either means this new name that no one knows is the name of Jesus that's, that's applied to us, and that would be correct, or it means, literally, that you are given a new name that only you know. It's, it's probably a little bit of both, but I lean more toward the new name I had trouble reading this story earlier in the first service. You see, when Jesus says he'll give you a new name, why would he have to give you a new name? If you remember Jamie's call to worship this morning was from Isaiah 62. He said, you will no longer be called forsaken, but you will be called what? My delight is in her. In other words, God's all about changing people's names because the names that we are either given by other people or the name that we tend to call ourselves outside of the gospel of Jesus is almost always wrong. 
Yeah, I was cruising the, the uh, Preaching Today website. I came across this article from the Associated Press. And the title of the article, it's October 2010. It says, Unwanted Indian Girls Receive a New Name. In October 2011, the Associated Press ran a deeply moving story about the name-changing ceremony for girls in Mumbai, India. At birth, the 285 girls had been named Nakusa or Nakushi, which means unwanted in the primary Indian language of Hindi. The name unwanted is given to girls across India where families often value sons more than daughters and as a result, families, female babies are aborted and neglected at an alarming rate. But the renaming ceremony was an attempt to give the girls a new identity. The article reported the 285 girls wearing their best outfits with berets, braids, and bows in their hair lined up to receive certificates with their new names along with small flower bouquets. Some of the girls chose new names that mean prosperous, beautiful, good, or even very tough. One girl who had been named Nakusa by her grandfather who was disappointed in her at birth said, now in school my classmates and friends will be calling me by this new name. And that makes me very happy. I mean, how can you not get choked up with that kind of story on one hand? On the other hand, there's at least 285 people in this room who think the same thing about themselves. That you walk around saying, I am unwanted, I am unloved, I am uncared for, and yet here's what the gospel of Jesus says. That that is absolutely false. But he doesn't just say you're not unwanted, you're wanted. He changes your name. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service today called, I will change your name, that you're no longer called forsaken, but you're called my delight is in her. You're no longer called faithless, miserable sinner, but you're called son or daughter. That God is all about changing our name. So it isn't just that we're invited to the feast. It isn't just that we're forgiven of our sins. But in fact, he changes our name. And so as you're going through the week this week, maybe give some thought. What, is, what are the names that you think of yourself? What are the names that you call yourself? Stupid. Disorganized. Loser, lazy, what is it? And then remind yourself that Jesus has given you a new name. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we partake of the Lord's table even now, that we would partake of this hidden manna and we would rejoice in the fact that you've given us a new name. On one hand, we all bear the same name, and that is the name of Jesus. On the other hand, because each of us struggles with different things, there are different issues uh, and different names, I would imagine, that you've given to all of us that we need to hear. I pray that you would speak that word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.